It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? Gregor McGregor. Now, there's a name. He was a Scottish soldier of fortune who fought alternately for the Spanish, Portuguese, and British in Latin America and Florida. Possessing unusual charisma, eloquence, and the gift of persuasion, he was progressively promoted to the rank of colonel, then brigadier general, and he fought in a number of battles and skirmishes between 1812 and 1820. When he eventually returned to Europe, McGregor launched a bold money-making scheme by announcing that while fighting in the tropics, he had made, been made the chief of a small, beautiful, and absolutely fictional country that he referred to as Puyaisi. He claimed the nation was a modern paradise friendly to Europeans, and to back up his story, he even produced hand-drawn maps and a copy of their constitution. Soon, the charming and flamboyant McGregor was the toast of London. Lavish parties were frequently held in his honor as he managed to ingratiate himself to the many nobles. McGregor then shifted his con into high gear when he started selling plots of land in Poyaisa to unsuspecting investors to raise money for a colony of settlers. When the dust had cleared, McGregor had made off with thousands of dollars. Hundreds had invested their savings in this phony government bonds and land certificates. Sadly, about 250 immigrated to McGregor's invented country in 1822 and 23 to find out only a fierce untouched jungle. More than half of them died. In the end, McGregor fled to Venezuela where he was welcomed back as a hero. He died in Caracas in 1845 at the age of 58 and he was buried with full military honors in the Caracas Cathedral. McGregor's Poyaya scheme has been called one of the most brazen frauds in history. Did you know the Bible talks about another slick con artist who offers people a paradise he doesn't own? Stay with us, friends. We're going to learn more on this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, accurate and practical answers to your Bible questions. Welcome, listening friends. If you have a Bible question, that's why we have this program. These are very interesting times. People have a lot of questions about the Bible and prophecy in particular. We will do our best with the Bible resources at our fingertips to answer your questions. You can also watch the program streaming on the Amazing Facts Facebook page. You just type in Amazing Facts Facebook, it'll take you there, or the Doug Batchelor Facebook page, and you can take a little peek at what's happening here in our studios in Northern California. One more time, the phone number for your Bible questions, 800 463 
And I am Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross. Good evening, friends, and Pastor Doug, as we always do, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to open up your word and study. And we do ask, Lord, that your spirit would be with us. We know the Bible is your book. And in order for us to understand it aright, we need the spirit to guide us to be with us here in the studio and be with those who are listening across the country and uh, even around the world. Thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Doug, you opened the program by talking about this bold hoax to try and uh, deceive as many people as possible about a country that, first of all, didn't even exist. And secondly, he didn't have any ownership of any land down in the Caribbean or South America. And yet he was able to deceive a lot of people out of a lot of money. And then you mentioned just before he went on the air, not only did he do this in England, but eventually he tried the same stunt in France before going back to South America. Some people believed it. They gave up their life savings. They took two ships across the ocean to the coordinates he had given for this country, which, of course, they ran into the Mosquito Coast. There was nothing there. And I guess many died from hunger and, and malaria. And it makes me think a little bit about another con artist that was offering a kingdom he didn't even own. You can read about it in the Bible in Luke 4, verse 5 during the great temptations of Christ. It says, Then the devil, taking him, Jesus, up onto a high mountain, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you in their glory, for it has been delivered to me. He claimed ownership of the world. And I'll give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. Here's the devil saying, Oh, I, I own the world. I'll give it to you. And Jesus answered, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, it is true, the devil has, you know, he kind of hijacked the planet for a while, but Christ bought it back with his death for each of us. And, of course, a person needs to make that decision to personally accept Jesus. But if you'd like to know more about how to win that same victory that Jesus won when uh, the chief con artist tried to bamboozle him, we have a book that talks about something we deal with every day. The book that we have, that's our free offer today, is entitled Tips for Resisting Temptation. And as Pastor Doug mentioned, this is something that every Christian faces where the devil is constantly trying to uh, hoax us or deceive us. And so we want to know how can we resist his temptations. We'll be happy to send this book to anyone who calls and asks. The number to call for that book is our resource phone line. The number is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the book called Tips for Resisting Temptation. Again, that number is 800-835-6747. If you have a Bible question, our phone lines to the studio here is 800-463-7297. We'd also like to greet our friends who are joining us on Facebook. Now we have folks joining us on the Pastor Doug Bachelor or Doug Bachelor Facebook page, as well as the Amazing Facts Facebook page. And uh, you can send us your question. As a matter of fact, you can call the number on the screen there, and you can uh, get your questions on the air. Going to go to the phone lines. We have Joel listening in New York. Joel, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing, Mr. Zatakabat? <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> good, good, good. My question is, is about Daniel. Is that I don't understand. I'm a little confused about when in the revelation he had in the dream that it says about that he saw a son of man. I just wanted to confirm, is he really saw Jesus because before he came to the world or he saw God in a dream or, or what, what is it that he saw an angel or he saw an angel? I just wanted to confirm. Sure, yeah. When you look in Daniel chapter 7 in this vision, 
It says in verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now that sounds, of course, like Jesus said, he's going to come in the clouds. And he came to the ancient of days. That would be God the father. Jesus is God the son. In Revelation, there you have Jesus appearing in the first chapter, but you also have angels. So it depends on what verse you're talking about. To kind of connect the son of man phrase that you find in Daniel, you also find it also in Revelation chapter 14. And verse 14 makes it very clear who that represents. Verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And it goes on to describe the second coming of Christ. So here in Revelation 14, it talks about the Son of Man as being Christ, and we find the same thing also in Daniel. So I hope that helps a little bit, Joel, but you're on the right track. Uh, Those visions of the Son of Man, that is Jesus. Thank you so much for your question. We've got Marcus listening from Knoxville, Tennessee. Marcus, welcome to the program. Oh, hi. Um, I wonder what, what the image to the beast means. The image of the beast. Well, of course, this is found in Revelation 13. And in Revelation 13, you have two beasts. You've got this uh, great beast that receives a deadly wound. And then it says, I saw, verse 11, it says, I saw another beast rising up out of the earth. First beast rises up out of the sea. Second beast rises up out of the earth. And he tells the world to worship the first beast whose deadly wound is healed. Now, an image, of course, is a likeness. It means a facsimile, a representation. Idolatry, of course, is forbidden in the Bible. When you read in Revelation 13, to understand it, you almost need to be aware in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, tells everybody to worship the image he's made. If they don't worship, they'll be killed. In the last days, there's going to be a confederacy of two uh, great religious powers that are going to be apostatizing. And many believe that uh, one is going to be based in Europe, in Rome, and the other one based in North America. Now, I'm a loyal American, but I this is what prophecy says, that a lot of Catholics and Protestants are going to drift away from the scriptures. They're going to make a political, and boy, I tell you, we're on the verge of something now, too. They're going to make a political, uh, religious organization that is going to compel people to worship based on, based on the way that uh, people were forced to worship during the Dark Ages. This beast received a deadly wound, but it's healed. Boy, it's more than we can answer in three minutes. I, I wonder if we can send you a lesson on that, Marcus. We've got... Uh, well, let me see. Who is the Antichrist or the Mark of the Beast? Either well, we've got two, matter of fact, uh, and you can ask for both. We'll be happy to send it to you. The one is called the Mark of the Beast, talking about the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. Then we have a study guide called the USA in Bible Prophecy that I think will get more into what the image of the beast is. And we'll be happy to send this to you. All you'll need to do is give us a call. The number is 800-835-6747 and ask for the study guide called the Mark of the Beast as well as the study guide called the U.S. in Bible Prophecy. And of course, this is for Marcus or anyone who'd like to learn more. Call the number. We'll have to send it to you. Thank you for your call. We've got Alan listening in uh, Indiana. Alan, welcome to the program. Oh, what an honor it is to be on the program. Um, I just want to say thank you for you guys' ministry. It changed my life. I was uh, a high-ranking drug uh, gang member that was involved in, in a lot of 
and horrible things, and, and I got seven felonies. The DA came. I was facing 60 years, and I asked the Lord to send me in the right direction. I got a hold of Amazing Facts, the richest caveman, and it changed my life forever. Oh, bless your heart. Amen. Well, thanks so much, Alan, for that testimony. But now let's get your question, because you're going to make me cry otherwise. 18 years, drugs and alcohol-free. Thanks to you, sir. Thank you. Oh, well, praise the Lord. It's thanks to the Lord, but I appreciate it so much. Okay, so my question is, is um, when I first started studying the Bible, I started thinking that um, that the angels was created prior to the six-day creation week. And then I started, here in the last year, I've been really studying Genesis because uh, my kids go to school and they're getting taught evolution and all this stuff. And I really wanted to enforce them on the Genesis story. And so I started studying Genesis and I come to the conclusion that the angels were born, and you might have done it in one of these your programs because I also listen to all Joe Cruz's stuff as well. Um, I, I, I'm wondering, was the angels and Satan, which was obviously an angel, um, was he made in the six day creation week? And if so, if you would allow a follow up angel, is then Adam and Eve had their first kid when they was 120 years oldish, somewhere in that area. Satan had the fall within the first hundred years. Well, let's talk about that. Great question. You know, from what we see in the Bible, Adam and Eve were created. Now, when it says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, it doesn't mean he made the angels that week. It's an oversweeping headline that back in the beginning, everything was made by God. But before God made man, the angels existed because they are the ministering spirits of God. And I think in the book of Job, Pastor Ross, and I can't remember the verse, it says, when creation happened, the angels of God, the sons of God shouted for joy. So they had to exist before creation. I frankly think that God not only has life here on earth, I believe there are other unfallen worlds that the Lord has made in, you know, the cosmos is infinite. That way back, you know, we can't even pin a time on it, that millions of billions of years ago, when God made his angels, probably one of the first angels he made was Lucifer. You found that verse? Yeah, that's Job chapter 38. It's talking about creation. It talks about when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So it's referring to a time, the verse just before that says, to what were the foundations fastened or who laid the cornerstone? It's talking about the creation of the earth. And here it says, when that happened, the sons of God shouted for joy. It says the morning stars sang together. We know stars in Bible symbol uh, refers to angels, according to Revelation chapter 1. Yeah, in Revelation 12, it says Satan, he's cast to earth. A third of the angels follow. Uh, a third of the uh, stars follow. They're later, same chapter, I think it calls them angels. Yeah, Alan, I, I, thank you so much for your testimony. That's so encouraging. But I, I do think the angels were existed before the world was created, you would really enjoy our Cosmic Conflict DVD. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but if you go online, Alan, and you just type in Cosmic Conflict Doug Batchelor, you'll see, you can watch it for free. I think there's a high resolution version we've uploaded, so people can just watch it for free. Journey back through time to the center of the universe. Discover how a perfect angel transformed into Satan the arch-villain, the birth of evil, a rebellion in heaven, a mutiny that moved to earth. Behold the creation of a beautiful new planet and the first humans. 
Witness the temptation of evil. Discover God's amazing plan to save his children. This is a story that involves every life on earth. Every life. The Cosmic Conflict. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, if God is love, then what went wrong? For life-changing Christian resources, visit afbookstore.com. All right, thank you for your call. Our next caller that we have is, uh, let's see, we've got Chris calling from uh, Sonoma, California. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's been a long time. God bless you guys. Well, God bless you. Thank you for calling back. I'm glad to be back. Never left. <laughs> Pastor Doug, uh, I was I, I think I kind of know the answer to this question. I just want to hear some good news proclaimed. Could you please elaborate on what the latter rain means in prophecy? Yes, and I, I quoted Pastor Ross even this week from that in Zechariah. I forget the verse. We said, ask of the Lord, rain in the time of the latter rain, he'll send flashing clouds. Amen. That's a symbol for the Holy Spirit. And just so folks understand, the in the Hebrew farming economy, they didn't have all the artificial irrigation we have. They knew there was a season when typically they'd get their rains, and, and they used a lunar calendar, and sometimes the rains are affected in the tides by the moon. So they would plant their seed, and then they would get this first rain that would then sprout the seed, and there'd be periodic rains through the year. And then there was a final rain just before harvest that would ripen the grain. Now, you didn't want it to rain right during the harvest because that could wreck the, the ripened grain. But there was a final rain they called the latter rain. And many believe that when Jesus poured out his spirit at Pentecost, that was the former rain. Christ had been sowing the seed of the gospel, his word. The church exploded. There was great growth that sprouted up. Through history, it's been maturing before he comes, as pictured in Revelation, he's coming to harvest the earth. There's another outpouring of the Spirit that will happen that will bring revival to the church, great proclamation of the gospel, great harvest of believers, then Jesus comes. And there'll be great persecution just before the end as well. Now the verse you're referring to is Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain, and the Lord will make flashing clouds, and he'll give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Perfect. So thank you. You know, we do have a book that talks about the Holy Spirit, our greatest need, and we'll be happy to send you a free copy. If you'd like to receive it, call and ask. The number is 800-835-6747. And again, just ask for the book called The Holy Spirit, The Need. And we'll send that out to anyone who calls and asks. We've got Dalma listening in Texas. Dalma, welcome to the program. Hello. Hello, Pastor. Hi. Thank you for calling. Yes. Um, I have a question about... Uh, Genesis chapter 26, verse 5, and it's uh, talking about Abraham and how he kept God's charge and uh, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. I was wondering, what's the difference between the three? All right, very good question. Uh, first, the easy one is the Ten Commandments are a distinct moral law. Sometimes it's called the Decalogue. Deca means ten, like a decade. The Ten Words are the Ten Commandments. And you can read where it, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, And I gave them my law, even ten commandments. And my servant Moses at that time also gave them other statutes and laws. You've got the ten commandments. And then beyond that, you've got certain civil laws, ceremonial laws about the priests and sacrifices. 
There were health laws. Now, when you look at the, my commandments, probably the one that we think about is the Ten Commandments, even though they weren't written on stone by the time of Abraham that came later on with Moses. Uh, Abraham was very much aware of the Ten Commandments. We know that breaking one of the Ten Commandments is sin. Where it says, my statutes, that's referring to probably more so the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was expanded upon in the time of Moses, but even back in Abraham's time, they still had the sacrificial system. And circumcision came along too. And yeah. circumcision, yes. So that's part of the cere- or the statutes of the ceremonial law. And then my laws is just in general, uh, if you want to clump all of them together, you can put them on that last or third phrase, meaning all of the commandments given by God, whether they be the Ten Commandments or whether they be, be part of the ceremonial law or even social laws. Mm-hmm. And that verse again that I was uh, fishing for before was Deuteronomy 4.13. It says, So he declared to you his covenant that he commanded you to perform. Even the Ten Commandments, he wrote them on two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time, Moses is speaking, to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land where you go to possess. If you take a look, you'll see, Delmar, we have... A free offer we'll be happy to send you called Written Stone, and it talks about the laws of God. The number to call to receive that is 800-835-6747. And again, you can just ask for the study guide on the Ten Commandments called Written in Stone. We've got Camille listening from West Virginia. Camille, welcome to the program. West, she might have her mute on. All right, let's try someone else. Okay, we go to, let's see, we've got Christina listening from California. Christina, welcome to the program. Hi, good evening, Pastor. Evening. Um, I have a question, um, and it is kind of like, it kind of seems everywhere I go, school, church, family members, everywhere, as I come in contact with people who speak um, gossip or profanity, and I want to be a good witness, and so I, I feel like there's something that I should say, you know, in a kind and loving way that, you know, I kind of don't like that or I don't agree with that. You know, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm not sure I know the the best answer because I think the same thing all the time. Everywhere you go, and you know, sometimes you're standing on the corner wherever you're at, you're in a store, and there'll be kids. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 15, 16 years old, and they're using just terrible language. And it's not like they're just doing it off on a corner, you know, trying to impress their friends. They're doing it in public with no shame. And I've wondered before, Lord, do you want me to say something? They're, you know, their parents aren't around. Pastor Ross and I occasionally, we play uh, racquetball with some friends, good guys, and every now and then they'll use words and you just cringe and you wonder. If you know someone well enough, I think, you know, you got to be careful. If it's someone else's kids, you might talk to their folks and say, you know, you should really, really encourage them not to do that in public. Of course, they might clobber you if you say that. And if you have a friend, you know, I've got some friends that are not believers and I hear them use the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I might say, you know, I'm a Christian and boy, it just makes me cringe. Could you just do me a favor and not do that around me? And they usually apologize. I say, oh, yeah, I forgot. Sorry. So you just, I think in every case, you got to pray for the Holy Spirit and how you do it. You want to be real gentle. But yeah, I think sometimes people need to be called on the carpet. There's, there's no reason to talk dirty in public like that. Anytime. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yes. Thank you so much, Pastor. Yeah, just pray for the Holy Spirit to guide you in each case might be a little different. We got time for another call before the break. Yeah, we do. We got uh, Andrews listening from Long Island, New York. Andrews, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. How are you guys? Good. How are you doing? Yeah. Thank you for your ministry. Yeah, I'm doing good too. So yeah, my question is, um, where in the Bible you find this small time of trouble that some some denominations mention it? 
And is that the same as the Jacob trouble? All right. Thanks so much. Great question. Every now and then you'll hear somebody ask a question about small time of trouble, and they do that in relationship to the tribulation. That's because many Christians believe, I think it's pretty clear in the Bible, that the great, great tribulation, when the seven last plagues are poured out, that's a time when the saved are saved and the lost are lost, as it mentions in Revelation 22. There's no changing times. An example of this would be in Noah's day, when Noah and his family got on the ark, you know, he made his final appeal and God shut the door. Well, when God shut the door, the lost were shut out. Noah and his family were shut in. They were saved. The wicked were lost. But life went on for seven more days. Probation had closed. Up until the time probation closes, there is going to be some persecution in the world where Christians are going to be brought before kings and rulers. We're going to be preaching. There'll be some uh, hard times. Can't buy or sell. And there'll be a time of testing. This is going to be the small time of trouble. We don't know how long it is. Some say, well, will it be a year, three and a half years? And doesn't, I don't think, specifically say. The time of Jacob's trouble, I think, happens right after the plagues fall. That's a time when the devil's going to just try to overwhelm God's people with discouragement that they can't be saved, make them lose faith. Even though his destiny is sealed, Satan has still come down with great wrath. And they're going to they're gonna be just wanting to know that their sins are forgiven, just like Jacob when he wrestled with the Lord because he had betrayed his father and his brother and Esau was on his way to enact revenge and he just wrestled in prayer with God. There'll be a time like that, I think. Just a couple of verses on that, Pastor Doug. You've got Matthew 24 talking about this, what we call the small time of trouble or the little time of trouble. It says that they will deliver you up to tribulation, kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then it says, and many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another, and then many false prophets will arise. Uh, that takes place before probation closes. And then you find in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Michael stands up, and there will be a time of trouble worse than the world has ever seen. That's the great time of trouble when the seven last plagues are poured out. But at that time, God's people are protected. Right. They might, uh, their faith might be tried, but they'll be protected from those plagues that come. Hey, I appreciate that. I hope, I hope that makes sense. There's probably, uh, <laughs> we're going through a little time of trouble right now in uh, North America and the world. Very interesting, almost apocalyptic headlines. You know, friends, um, we're going to come up on a break here in just a minute and a half. And so you stand by. We see Tim, Logan, Emmanuel, Akash. Uh, we, we see you waiting, and uh, there are some lines open. If you'd like to call in with your Bible question, don't go away. This is really a, a good time for people to draw closer to the Lord. People are, uh, many are sequestered in their homes, and they're kind of self-isolating. Noah had to store food on the ark to get ready for the flood, and there's a storm ahead. Now is a good time to be feeding on the Word of God. If you are parents, you get kids home. Turn them to the word. They may be a little anxious about what's happening. Tell them they can cast their cares on Jesus, that he loves them and they don't have to worry. Good time for us to draw together with our families and with the Lord and even as a, as a people. You know, there's all, we just did some special messages this weekend at Amazing Facts. And if you go to the Amazing Facts Facebook page, you can go to the Doug Batchelor Facebook page. We posted some special messages that one was used as a worship service this weekend. I think you'll find some encouragement in that. Now don't go away. We're just going to take a break. We're going to get right into your questions when we come back. 
Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. What if you could know the future? What would you do? What would you change? To see the future, you must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history, Kingdoms in Time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit KingdomsInTime.com. If you enjoy hearing solid biblical answers on Bible Answers Live, you can have those same insights at your fingertips through the Amazing Facts Prophecy Study Bible. The updated hardcover version is available at its lowest price ever and includes the complete set of Amazing Facts 27 study guides, plus a Bible numbers and symbols chart and eight pages of colorful maps. This best ever Bible gives you a biblical cyclopedic index. Words of Christ in Red, Chronology of the Old Testament, along with Doug Batchelor's How to Study the Bible feature, and much more. Call us at AF Bookstore to learn more about it at 1-800-538-7275. The Amazing Facts Prophecy Study Bible stands apart from other Bibles, giving you the same solid answers you hear each week on Bible Answers Live. Order your copy today at afbookstore.com or by calling 1-800-538-7275. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And if you have a Bible question, we invite you to call in. We're going to try and get through as many questions as we can the second half of the program. So uh, cheer up, call in, uh, wait for a moment. If the line rings and someone will pick up, they'll take your call. And we're here to do our best to answer Bible questions, especially during a time like this where there is so much uncertainty. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross. We're going to go to our next caller. We have uh, Akish listening from Illinois. Akish, welcome to the program. Hi, good evening, Pastor. Good evening to Pastor Batchelor as well. Thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, as Christians, uh, should we participate in the 2020 census? I just wanted your insight on it, Pastor Bachelor. Like, what do you think? Should we participate in the census? Yeah, uh, that's that's a good question. There is nothing wrong. Now, David got in trouble when he numbered Israel, but it wasn't because there was anything morally wrong with 
you know, doing a census. David did it through the military and they had been instructed to do it through the priests. And when the priests were to take a census, Moses said that each person was to pay a little temple tax. And David just kind of did his own thing and he knew better. And he was doing it out of pride. There's no moral dilemma that I know of, Akash, if someone comes to your door and they says, look, we're just working for the government so we can figure out, you know, how to manage everything from the military to taxes and stuff, who's in our country. Uh, there's, you know, big questions about immigration and how quick immigration is, is growing. And I don't see there's any moral problem. They usually just ask you, you know, some basic, if there's any question you're uncomfortable with, I think you can tell them that's personal. I don't want to answer. Yeah, I'd participate as long as they're not asking questions. You think you have to compromise any moral prerogative. Yeah, yeah. we find in the New Testament, the Bible tells us as far as possible, we want to cooperate with the um, civil authorities. Uh, that includes not only paying taxes, but if you call to provide some service for the good of the country, uh, you want to do that. And I think if uh, they do a census as far as possible, if it's not contradicting a law of God, you want to be supportive. I had a heart attack about 20 years ago. Most people don't know. I shot a bear that came to my house. He was trying to get in my house. The next day, a forester shows up on my front door. You've been to my house out in the middle of nowhere. I thought, how did he know that I had to kill that bear last night? And he said, I'm here to take your census. <laughs> when I saw that forester there, I thought, oh, man, I had no choice. I was ready to confess to the bear. <laughs> Don't worry, friends. It's out. It's out now. People know about the bear, so it's not a secret anymore. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, he he said, yeah, they're hiring everybody to take the census, and we don't have much to do this time of year, so we're up. <laughs> you probably thought the bear had some tracking device. And I, it was yeah, a special I bear. I thought, how did he know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. That, that's <laughs> okay. a diversion, friends. All right. Thanks for your call, uh, Akish. We've got um, Daryl listening from Florida. Daryl, welcome to the program. Hey, uh, Pastor John Ross and Pastor Doug. Uh, you know how they had the Pope on uh, TV here recently uh, praying at uh, St. Peter's Square? And I thought, hey, you know, it'd be interesting if uh, the next day or two that, you know, the coronavirus, uh, for instance, goes away. And then, you know, would that be the like the fulfillment of Revelation? That'd be quite a miracle that would get people's attention. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that would heal the the fully heal the deadly wound. I tell you, you know, you're not the only one who's asked me that question. And people have wondered, you know, the, the Bible tells us in prophecy that as Christ said there'll be false Christs, and probably the devil is reserving his masterpiece of masquerading as the Savior for just before the end times. And many people have thought, well, boy, what the world really is ripe now for someone to impersonate Christ. Now, I don't know that's going to happen right away. And yeah, when the, I saw that eerie picture on the news of the Pope out there by himself, not from his balcony, but right in the middle of St. Peter's Square where they've got the big gathering area doing a solo mass with nobody around. It was kind of a haunting picture. But yeah, if, if all, suddenly the plague came to a standstill in Italy, that would give him a lot of credibility. So I, I, I think I see what you're talking about, Daryl. Very interesting. And we do, you know, we, we need all the prayers we can get with this virus. A lot of people are really struggling. Of course, there's the medical challenges. There's a health issue. And then there's the financial, the wealth issue in that uh, this is probably going beyond recession. And it may cause a, a global depression at this point. And a lot of people are anxious. So there's a fear component that goes with it. And that's why it's so important for a Christian to remember, we've got a peace that passes understanding. Jesus said, don't be afraid. 
In the world, you'll have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Curtis is next, listening in Tennessee. Curtis, welcome to the program. Yes, good evening. How you doing, Mr. John and Mr. Doug? Doing great. Thank you for calling. That's great. Thank you for answering my call. Just had a um, simple question that was kind of puzzling my mind. Do either you guys think that the continent of Antarctica was formed after the first flood in the first Earth age? You know, well, and now I'm I'm kind of getting out of my wheelhouse of expertise. My, you know, I'm not a geologist. My opinion is, from reading Christian geologists, is that there probably was one continent before the flood, and that the flood caused very radical tectonic shifting happening. At that time, Antarctica was separated from, uh, you know, the other mainland. I don't know that. They just, you know, from geology, they see similarities in the coasts between Antarctica and parts of Africa and, and Malaysia. But I'm kind of guessing there, Curtis, I think it happened during the flood. I think the pyramids were built. I think your second part of your question, you were asking about the pyramids. I think the pyramids were built following the flood. I know they're extremely sophisticated. You've been to the pyramid. No, I haven't. Oh, you've been to Israel. Yeah. I've, I've been to Egypt and I went inside the Great Pyramid and... I'll tell you what, boy, they don't let you inside anymore, but I went back, you know, 30 years ago when you could go up in it and you could see the the laser-tight lines between these extremely complicated, cut, massive stones. You think, I don't think there's any company in the world today that has the technology to cut stones that precisely and fit them together. Huge stones. Can't put a knife between their seams. No, No mortar. And so the technology they had... I think they brought some of it over from the other side of the flood. There just was a wisdom they had back then that we don't understand. Good question. Appreciate that, Curtis. Thanks so much for calling. Trudy is listening from uh, Virginia. Trudy, welcome to the program. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, and I want you to tell me the name of the town you're calling from. Tappahannock. Tappahannock. Indian word. (laughs) (laughs) W-X-T-R. And I enjoy our run at 2 p.m., and also 10 in the, uh, on Sunday to uh, hear your broadcast. Love you. Love you all. Oh, well, thank you so much. Now, get real close to your phone because you're kind of breaking up. Uh, what's your question tonight? Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I, I get a little annoyed when I hear uh, commentaries, biblical commentaries, and um, religious people in general uh, infer that Bathsheba tempted uh, David to sin. I understand he sent for her. She had no choice unless she wanted to be in place of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, you know, three Hebrew boys. She had to succumb to that. So why is it that they say that she was complicit with David? Well, that, that is a good question. And, you know, some of it we can only speculate. I can tell you what the Bible says, and then I can sometimes tell you what the Bible doesn't say. She was bathing in her courtyard. David saw her from his roof. The argument of some commentators is she knew where the palace was, and she knew that David was home, and that she was trying to allure him. It doesn't say that in the Bible. That is what you call speculation. Entirely possible that it was just her bath time and she you know, didn't know anyone was going to look over the walls. But when David did send for her, it doesn't say David raped her. That, I think, would have been included in the text, which means 
that, you know, he, I think, you know, he used his position and his power. And keep in mind, David was a handsome man. David was a musician, a poet. Her husband was away and he took advantage of her vulnerability. But she, I think, still had a choice in the matter. I don't think he raped her. So somewhere in the middle, you get the truth there. Yeah, just to add to that a little bit, um, when she was, when she did discover that she was pregnant, she sent word to David and said, you know, I'm with child. And it seemed as though... The reason she said that to David and not to her husband kind of gives the idea that maybe she was in agreement with what was happening. And then, of course, when David came up with the idea for Uriah to come back home, she didn't tell him either. So you would assume that she was in agreement with David. She may have been a reluctant accomplice, but she was an accomplice, yeah. So that's a good question a lot of people have wondered. Thank you, Trudy, and I hope that helps a little bit. And we could be wrong. Again, there's some speculation that has to happen there. Who's next? We've got uh, Kendi listening. Kendi, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor Doc. Hi, Pastor John. Thank you again for taking my call. I truly appreciate it. Uh, yes. I must say I've been listening to the program ever since I was in the station in North Carolina, Camp Lejeune, Marine Corps Base. Oh, wonderful. And uh, your program, you guys changed my life amazingly, so I thank you enough for that. Like, you really want to understand the tremendous impact you guys have had in my life. So, again, I truly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Oh, that's very encouraging. Thank you, Kendi. <laughs> Absolutely. So my question is um, dealing with the the subject of, of prayer. A lot of time, again, giving this specific time that we're living in right now, um, I sometimes when I am praying and I feel like my mind is sometimes wandering around. And I remember you were preaching a couple of you know weeks ago where you're saying so a lot of time when you're preaching, you know, sometimes your mind is wandering, you're wandering off around to something else. It's probably the Holy Spirit is revealing you something that you need to pray about. But can you can you kind of like guide me a little bit because sometimes I feel like I really am praying like I have the urgency and the sincerity, the desire to be sincere with God in my prayer, and as I am praying, I find myself sometimes wandering around and I bring myself back and I'm like God, please guide me back, please guide me back. So can you help me out on that, please? I would appreciate it. That's a great question. Just be insured, assured that you're not alone. I think everybody out there, our minds. When you think about how many thoughts go through your mind in a in a you know 10 second period probably hundreds of thoughts your your eyes are taking things in all your senses are taking things in prayer is like carrying on a conversation with somebody where you have to focus on what you're saying but part of prayer is not just speaking sometimes you can just be silent on your knees and listen you know sometimes the holy spirit will make impress you it is true the devil will sometimes come while you're praying and he'll put thoughts in your mind. And I'm thinking, oh, heaven, forgive me. Look at what's going through my mind while I'm praying. <laughs> I, but sometimes the Holy Spirit will, you know, and sometimes the devil tries to distract you from your prayers. And sometimes the Holy Spirit, while I'm praying, all of a sudden I remember someone I need to call that day or something I need to do. And I had totally forgotten about. It takes practice, but I think you're doing the right thing. You bring your mind back. And we have a book where I talk about this, and it's called Teach Us to Pray, and it talks about when your mind wanders, among other things. That's right. We'll be happy to send this to you, Kendi, or anyone wanting to learn more about how do we pray effectively. The book is called Teach Us to Pray, and if you'd like to receive it, the number to call for that book is our resource phone line, 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book Teach Us to Pray. If you're outside of North America, you can go to the website, just amazingfacts.org, and you can read it for free online at our resource library on the Amazing Facts website. Again, thank you for your call. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. 
If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at 1-800-GOD-SAYS. Millions of people believe that planet Earth is on the verge of some apocalypse that will plunge the world's cities into chaos. In response, thinking people everywhere are wondering if it might be a good time to locate their families outside of the congested metropolitan areas. In my new book, Heading for the Hills, A Beginner's Guide to Country Living, I do my best to provide a biblical balance. I'd like to share with you some of the crucial things you'll need to know before you head up for the hills. I'd also like to identify some of the practical things you look for in buying a piece of country land, how to develop water, power, and a garden, all while still seeking to save the lost. This book has some very valuable information for anybody that's ever considering country living. Order your copy of Heading for the Hills. Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Next caller that we have is uh, Della listening from the Netherlands. Della, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, my question was concerning um, the advice of Ellen White that it is time for us to leave the cities and go into secluded areas, the countryside, country living. And how do you apply that to persons who are physically or financially unable to do so? Or maybe the housing system in the country where they are living doesn't really allow them to do so? How do you apply that advice to such people? Yeah, you know, in the Bible, it says in, I think, is it Isaiah chapter 5, where he says, Woe to those that lay house to house and field to field, so there's no place where a man might be alone in the earth. And let me see here. And maybe it's Isaiah 7. Yeah, I'm looking through Isaiah here. Anyway, there are benefits in living in the country where, uh, and especially in the last days, you know, as you, you get near the end, you look at what's happening in places like Madrid and Milan and New York City and Wuhan, and some of these major cities. Yep. Yep. It's uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8. Verse 8. I just didn't read far enough. The, you know, God's plan for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was not a metropolis. Now, cities inherently, there's nothing evil about a city because Jesus is taking us to the new Jerusalem, which is the city of God, where a lot of people will live together, but there's no sin there because everyone's been redeemed. Because people are sinful and our hearts are broken, you get a lot of people in a city, you get a concentration of sin, there'll be more crime, there'll be more drugs, there'll be more evil influence. You're typically going to have you know, more disease and problems like that, more drugs. Getting in a more rural environment, you're more likely to have cleaner air, cleaner water, less congestion, and a healthier environment for your family. A little further out, you'll have a little more room to plant trees, plant a garden, and a little more freedom and isolation if there's ever any you know, kind of riots in the city. I don't think the message for Christians is to all run out into the wilderness and hide yourself from civilization because the Bible says Jesus went throughout the cities and villages preaching. And so there's a lot of lost people. I think as of about five years ago, the majority of people in the world are now in urban areas. They used to be in rural agricultural areas, but it's been shifting to the cities since farming has become more mechanized. So I don't think it's God's plan for everybody to just uh, pull up their tent and run to the country. It is preferable. If, if your circumstances do not allow for that, 
then just say, Lord, help me to be a witness for you where I am. So a person's got to consider their job, their family, their circumstances. Someone has to be doing ministry in the cities. Best thing is you got a good deal, Pastor Ross. You kind of live in the country, then you commute down to the city to do your work, and then you head for the hills after the program. So if you can live on the outskirts of a city where you can be a witness and still have the benefits of a little more rural environment, I think there's wisdom in that. But every every person, I think, needs to pray for guidance. You know, I think in particular when you have a family and you're looking for the best influence in, in raising your children, um, you want to think about trying to be on the outskirts of the city. But on the other hand, Pastor Doug, there are very dedicated families that purposely choose to go to a very populated area to do mission work. <laughs> we have a family that are committed to, to go to India. You can't talk about a more densely populated area, but they there for a mission. And we've got friends that went to Uganda and Kenya, and they get right in the middle of it and win souls. You know, I wrote, and this is, this is plain old shameless promotion, uh, Nikki, I wrote a book that just came out uh, about three months ago, and it's called Heading for the Hills, A Beginner's Guide to Country Living. Mrs. Bachelor and I have had a place up in the hills. Pastor Ross has been there before where we got some land way out. We're off the grid. You know, we made a few mistakes along the way, when, and I just want to share what we've learned. So we talk about if you're going to live in the country, what's some advice, and yet the importance to do ministry in the city. So if you're interested in that book, we can't give that one away. It just came out. Just go to the Amazing Facts website. It's called Heading for the Hills, A Beginner's Guide to Country Living. Thank you very much, Nikki. Well, that was uh, that was somebody else, Pastor Doug. We got Nikki on the phone right oh, now okay. from Massachusetts. Hi, Nikki. Hi. How are you, Pastor Doug and Pastor Ross? How are you? Great. Thank you for calling. This is actually my first time, so I, it's a blessing to actually hear from you all about my question. <laughs> we'll do our best. Okay, so I had a question um, in Genesis um, 2.21, how it says that God put um, Adam in a deep sleep. Now, I know that we're not supposed to be hooked on details, and um, I was thinking, did God have to actually place him in a deep sleep to the point that he was dead, and then he brought him back? And the reason why I'm asking that is because in different Bible verses, you know, I know that it's important for us to look at different Bible verses to allow the Bible to interpret itself. Mm -hmm. But I was looking at how Jesus um, arose Lazarus from the dead, but he also said that he was asleep also. And when he arose the young girl from, you know, um, her deathbed also and brought her back to life, but he also said, that she was sleeping as well. So I wanted to ask, because if he was alive, wouldn't that actually hurt, <laughs> you know, yeah. him taking out her rib? Well, it depends on who your doctor is. Under normal circumstances, if you try and take my rib, I'm going to wake up. But I think that when you consider that God made man, the Lord, you know, he, he could anesthetize him so he didn't feel anything. And he put him in a deep sleep. You know, the Bible, Bible tells us Jonah was in a deep sleep when he was in the boat, fast asleep. He's sleeping through a storm. Jesus was in a deep sleep when he was on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, we do it all the time now with uh, medicine. We can do surgery and put somebody to sleep. And, you know, they very much alive through the process. And it wouldn't be very hard for God to uh, cause a deep sleep where he didn't feel any pain and take out the rib and 
of course, the healing process now, if you have surgery, you've got a long healing process and a lot of pain. The Lord probably welded him right up. Yeah, I don't think Adam felt any pain or had a big old scar on his side that had to heal over time. But yeah, it was a special surgery. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm so thankful that if you go back, I think, 120 years or so, they had no anesthesia for operations. And you think about those wars where they just, you know, people were losing limbs and things in the surgery, and they just hold you down. And it's it's such a, a wonder of medicine now that they can put a person out for painful surgery. So thank you. Appreciate that, Nikki. We've got uh, Jude listening in Pennsylvania. Jude, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor Ross, Pastor Doc. How are you? Very good. And how are you holding up? Yeah, good. I'm a first-time caller, but a long-time follower. Uh, my question is in regard to Russ Corinthians, uh 15, verse 52. Uh, we had a, this past weekend, we, after Sabbath, we had our uh, Bible studies, and this is one of our assignments. And what was the last trumpets all about? So I was wondering how many trumpets are there uh, to begin with, and what's the last trumpets all about me? Well, that is a good question. You know, of course, there is a trumpet that blows. If you read in First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, the Bible tells us that the dead in Christ will rise. The Lord himself descends of heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead rise. When it says the last trumpet, a person might wonder the last of which. Well, you have seven trumpets in Revelation that kind of cover the military history of the church. And this last trumpet is the trumpet of the Lord's coming. I used to watch these cowboy and Indian movies where... I don't know if this is probably politically incorrect, but you'd have people that were in some desert fort and they're under attack and the flaming arrows are coming over the fort. And then all of a sudden you'd hear the trumpet in the distance that would go, and the cavalry's coming. It was like rescue. Well, they used to do that in battles where the trumpets were a signal of, of victory. And this is, I think, that last trumpet battle where Christ comes. Absolutely. You know, a trumpet was used to announce... Uh, or to gather together, or to proclaim some special proclamation. And here it is, Christ is coming, the battle is over, the dead in Christ are raised. So I think that trumpet there just signifies the end of the battle of earth. Uh, Jesus comes to take his people home. And it awakens the dead, those who are dead in Christ. Thank you, Jude. Hope that helps a little bit. All right, we've got uh, Aaron listening from uh, Oregon. Aaron, welcome to the program. Uh, Good evening, gentlemen. I was hoping you could expand upon how in the New Testament it says we are saved by faith through grace, but how also in Romans it says we are judged by our deeds, and how in James it says faith without works is dead. Ooh, good question. Uh, Before we run out of time, uh, there's a free offer I think you'll enjoy, and it's called Does God's Grace Blot Out His Law? So just make a note of that. Does God's Grace Blot Out His Law? One of the big debates that's happened through history, it still goes on today. We are saved by grace through faith. Revelation says, behold, he's coming in the clouds. I forget chapter one to judge every man according to his works. Mm-hmm. Is that verse seven or? Um, yes. It says we're saved by grace, but it says we're judged by our works because your works, your actions show, it says, show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. And that's James. We show our faith by our actions. If a person is saved by faith, they will, there'll be a difference in the works. So like Jesus said, don't say, Lord, Lord. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and they do not the will of my Father in heaven. So we should be doing the works 
if our hearts really have been changed, if we are born again, if we love and trust the Lord? You know, it begins with faith, uh, trusting in God, receiving his forgiveness. But once we receive his his forgiveness, how are we to live? That should change the heart. That should create a desire to serve him. Not that our obedience earns our salvation. God gives it to us. But now that we have it, how do we live? When a young man falls in love, there's all kinds of behavioral changes. And all of a sudden, he starts cleaning behind his ears and doing (laughs) things he's never done before (laughs) because he's in love. The behavior changes. Hey, I hope that helps a little bit. Get that free book called Does God's Grace Blot Out His Law? And the number, Pastor Ross? The number to call is our resource phone line, 800-835-6747. Ask for the book, Does God's Grace Blot Out the Law? Friends, we are living in amazing times, and we hope you'll make the most of amazing facts. Keep us on the air. Nothing more important than Christian ministry now. Simply go to our website, amazingfacts.org, and you can click donate. God bless. We'll talk again next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Do you feel as though your world is spiraling out of control? Or perhaps new life challenges are frightening you more than they should? Are you sinking while you're thinking? Excessive worry can consume you, eating you from the inside out, resulting in sickness, insomnia, and paralyzing fear. It can also damage relationships, ruin opportunities, and yes, diminish your witness for the gospel. Worry affects everybody differently, but it's all driven by fear. So how can you overcome a world full of reasons to be anxious? I'd like to recommend for you my new book, Finding Peace in a World of Worry. You'll discover a lifeline to victory, a place where you can cast your cares upon Christ and experience a serenity that isn't subject to your circumstances. Get your copy of Pastor Doug's Finding Peace in a World of Worry today. Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Deep within the pages of the Bible, stories of great heroes, heroes of great deeds, great love, and great sacrifice. But behind them is another hero, hidden in plain sight amid the shadows. He was there from the beginning, and he'll be there until the end. Discover the golden thread of a Savior woven throughout the entire Bible tapestry. Shadows of Light. Seeing Jesus in all the Bible. Get your copy today by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. If you'd like to enhance your study of God's Word, visit our website at www.amazingfacts.org and sign up for our free Bible study course. And make sure to check out our online bookstore at afbookstore.com, which offers thousands of inspiring books, DVDs, and more to help you get the most out of God's Word. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Did you enjoy this program? Make sure to tell your family and friends. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. 
honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions. 